Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I don't remember much. I blacked out. We had some sex, some bondage, some rough stuff. But with me on top, she must have suffocated under my own weight. On Sunday the 20th of January 2002, the body of 38-year-old sex worker Sally Rose White was discovered in the locked bedroom of Anthony Hardy's flat. Found naked, with her legs splayed, this petite lady had engaged in rough sex with this 19-stone man, which some light bruising, a bite mark, and a wound to her head had proven. Deemed a natural death and an accident, a qualified pathologist confirmed that Sally had died of heart failure, and thus Tony was not responsible for her death. With no witnesses, no murder weapon and no motive, as the police's prime suspect had no memory of that night owing to an alcoholic blackout, as was his legal right, he would state no comment to every question, and with a second autopsy returning the same conclusion, the murder case collapsed. Charged only with criminal damage to his neighbor's door, being assessed by several doctors as highly distressed and a suicide risk, as a long-term alcoholic with severe psychological needs, Tony was sectioned under the Mental Health Act for fear that he was a danger to himself. The truth about the Camden Ripper may never be known, as memories are vague, details were absent, and even the evidence by medical experts couldn't secure a conviction. And besides, it's hard to understand who he was, as he appeared to be a different person to different people at different times. But by viewing this story from his perspective, it's clear that there were four distinct sides to the personality of Anthony Hardy. The alcoholic, the addict, the sadist, and the maniac. These are the four faces of the Camden Ripper. Part two, Tony the Addict. That night, I'd been drinking a lot as I was low. My neighbor's leaky tap had upset me greatly, 
but have no ill feelings towards her now. It wasn't her, it was the drink. It makes the world a better place. People are friendly, it's worth being alive. Only I drink too much and I black out. Had he been found guilty of murder, he could have faced 20 years in prison. Had he been declared a danger to the public, he might have been locked up in a psychiatric unit for life. But being found innocent by a noted pathologist and sectioned four times before, Tony knew that his hospitalization was dependent on his recovery, meaning that he could be held for either days, months or years. On the 8th of January 2002, Tony was returned to the Mornington unit at the Huntley Centre, an intensive care psychiatric facility within St Pancras Hospital, behind King's Cross Station and a few doors from his flat. Set within an old Victorian hospital, this secure unit had all the essentials to keep the patients within, like cameras, alarms, locks, and every exit secured by a series of thick metal doors. With soft lighting, bright walls, soft sofas and a large telly, it was a far cry from the old asylums, with its aim to reflect a more positive and happier mental state. Held under Section 37 of the Mental Health Act, a court order made following his criminal conviction for the damage to his neighbour's front door. This meant that unlike a prison sentence, the length of his stay and the date of his discharge wasn't decided by a judge, but by the hospital. Previously deemed a suicide risk by a panel of experts, upon his release from Penterville Prison to the Mornington Unit, Tony said that he was feeling fine and had no thoughts of self-harm or harm to others. The staff were right to be wary of this six-foot-one, 19-stone hulk with a history of assault, abuse, sexual deviance and drunkenness, having been arrested twice prior on that very ward. Only he seemed a different man now, with the psychiatrist later noting, Mr. Hardy seemed stable throughout his admission, with no evidence of mental illness. He was granted escorted leave and spent a lot of time in bed and watching television. On his discharge summary, it even recorded that Mr. Hardy's suicidal thoughts had stopped when he knew he was moving to a hospital. Listed as not an immediate risk to himself, on the 29th of April 2002, he was transferred to the Cardigan Ward an acute mental illness ward at St. Luke's Hospital in Muswell Hill, with a diagnosis of bipolar disorder exacerbated by alcohol. On his first day, given that his illness and addiction were both treatable, he appealed his section order, asking that he be discharged from hospital, but his request was denied. Fully accepting their decision, once again, Tony became a model patient. His mood was lucid and calm. He had no delusions or mania. His mood swings were treated with lithium. His daily dosage of chlorpromazine 
an antipsychotic medication was reduced, and he had a good understanding of bipolar disorder. He was quiet, polite, and attended his therapy sessions and alcohol recovery program. As a long-term alcoholic who abused booze when his mood was low, he had at least 13 relapses during his stay at St. Luke's. Granted unescorted leave owing to good behavior, this gave him a few hours to attend his appointments with the alcohol advisory service, to shop for essentials, and to visit his flat at Fort Hartland, as the police had returned some of the items removed pending the ill-fated murder trial. Like many alcoholics, given a little bit of freedom from this strict regime, he lied about his movements, he hid alcohol in his room, and sometimes he returned to the ward still drunk. When he was bad, his leave was stopped, and when he was good, it was reinstated. Apart from that, he showed no signs of mania or psychosis. Even Tony later admitted, Over the last decade or so, I've been prone to binge drinking, although I wouldn't really call myself an addict. It's a crutch I use for when I'm low. And the hospital agreed. Only Tony's little show had left many people with an uneasy feeling. A social worker stated, I had the impression that Mr. Hardy would tell me what he thought I wanted to hear, that he would give me the information about his drinking that would improve his chances of being released from his section. Doctors at the Mornington unit had also expressed their concerns prior to his transfer, saying, when talking to him about the events surrounding his arrest, there was a severe lack of empathy and a strong sense that he was not telling the truth. But more than that, he knew that we knew he was not telling the truth. I don't say necessarily that he was enjoying it or that he was manipulating us, but that is very unusual. Some staff even reported that they found him to be a creep with a vague sense of evil. Also, his failure to recall a single detail of Sally's death was itself questionable. Throughout his life, he had blamed his violent outbursts on alcoholic blackouts. I drunk till I could drink no more. I blacked out. All I remember is being in the police cell. Only officers confirmed that when Tony was arrested, he smelt of drink, but he wasn't drunk. And the psychiatrists were equally skeptical. The acid and paint used to deface his neighbor's door showed premeditation, as did the bucket of warm soapy water, the key he had hidden, and the posing of Sally's body. A psychiatrist later stated, when I think of it, every time he did something bad, he had an alcoholic blackout and could never remember doing anything. On the 20th of June 2002, six months after his arrest, a meeting was held to discuss his section discharge. It was denied, as the doctors felt his mental illness still required treatment and the community services were not fully in place 
to help him cope with his alcohol addiction. In short, the risk of relapse, leading to a failure to take his medication, is too great in terms of a risk to himself and others, given his history. Only the more he relapsed, the more those treating him were convinced that alcohol was the problem, when in fact he was hiding the truth. His real addiction, which was never diagnosed or treated, was sex. Since the 1970s, as with alcohol, sex was vital to keep his mood in check. But in 1992, being diagnosed with diabetes, this disorder had left him with severe erectile dysfunction. A psychiatrist later stated, his distress, anger and frustration at his diminished sexual prowess was expressed in sadistic sexual activity, his intoxication with alcohol and his rage at his sexual dysfunction induced by diabetes. Whilst held at the cardigan ward at St. Luke's, he fought to keep his sexual impulses under wraps, but sometimes they came out. In an arts therapy workshop, a female facilitator touched a glass jar, which he had painted with the words, Sally Rose White, R.I.P. She apologized for leaving fingerprints on his artwork, at which he grinned and said, It's okay. When I'm in the bath, it'll remind me of you. During his decade as a homeless man, Tony was evicted from countless hostels, not only owing to his drunkenness, theft and assaults, but when he was manic, he became sexually aroused and uninhibited, often stripping naked, groping residents or staff and suggesting that they make a porno together, all of which he would deny had ever taken place, blaming the incidents on hijinks and alcoholic blackouts. On the 24th of April 1998, at King's Cross Station, he was arrested on suspicion of rape. Accompanying an 18-year-old sex worker back to his flat at King's Terrace. There they got drunk, stoned, and while she was intoxicated, he inserted his fingers inside her. Unable to disprove her consent, he pleaded guilty to the lesser charge of indecent assault but the police file shows that he was a suspect in three more rapes. Having coerced his care workers into believing that his independence was key to his mental stability, given his own flat at Four Heartland, in the privacy of his spare room, Tony indulged his six sexual cravings, whether domination, bondage, strangulation, or posing semi-conscious girls on the bed and shooting obscene images with his black shin on camera. In December 2002, having met a masseuse through a contact ad, at her home, he raped her, taking sadistic sexual satisfaction in crushing her with his 19-stone bulk. She later stated, I couldn't speak. I couldn't breathe. It was like he was pushing me down onto the bed. His face was pressed to mine, his chest was up to my neck, and my head was forced back. He got a kick 
knowing that I couldn't breathe. Pathologists call this homicidal asphyxiation, as it stops the blood circulating, causing dizziness, a lack of consciousness, and finally death, which could easily be mistaken for a heart attack during rough sex. Unaware of his suppressed sexual sadism, seeking to remedy his bipolar and alcoholism, as the sodium valparate was causing him impotence, the doctors prescribed him apomorphine, a precursor to Viagra. On the 14th of November 2002, a meeting was held by his psychiatrist, a ward doctor, a care worker, a social worker and Camden Housing Department, as well as Tony's lawyers, to discuss his section order. Being described as calm and cooperative, they decided to treat Tony as an outpatient, as he seemed to be dealing with his alcohol problem. The next day, he packed his bags and was discharged from hospital. A report by three psychiatrists with the North London Forensic Service was sent ahead of the meeting. But being misplaced in the mailroom, it arrived two days too late. In it, they express their concerns stating, Mr. Hardy poses a risk of violent behavior, even when his illness is controlled and when not intoxicated with alcohol, and that he should not return to his previous address owing to the extremely suspicious circumstances surrounding his arrest. A doctor at St. Luke's also gave six warnings that Anthony Hardy should not be released, stating he was vulnerable to relapse and he is a danger to women. The report concluded, Mr. Hardy has an untreatable personality disorder. There is a strong risk of reoffending and he is likely to cause serious physical or psychological harm to others. The report was right. Whilst on day release for good behaviour, the hospital was unaware that he had taken a train out of London, raped a sex worker, and he was back on the cardigan ward before his curfew was up. On the 15th of November 2002, Tony returned to his flat at Fort Hartland. As a stipulation of his discharge, he attended his therapy sessions, alcohol program, and collected his medication. He kept himself to himself and had no further incidents with his upstairs neighbor. With his life back to normal, he bought booze from the off-license on Plender Street, had a few pints at the College Arms pub, picked up sex workers at King's Cross Station, and chatted with Maureen about how skillfully the Whitechapel murderer had evaded justice. Released back into the community and being supervised from a distance, several agencies oversaw his return, but no one was wholly responsible for his day-to-day -day living but Tony. As long as he turned up to his therapy sessions and didn't look drunk, he was left to his own devices. Going from a model inpatient to a model outpatient, Tony took his cocktail of seven different pills for his diabetes, 
his mobility, his bipolar, and he was still self-medicating with large quantities of alcohol and cannabis. But he was on no form of prescribed medication to control his rampant sexual urges. In fact, it was the opposite. Prescribed apomorphine to combat his erectile dysfunction, having collected his carefully managed dose every Friday from St. Luke's, he secretly secured a second supply from University College Hospital. His libido was in overload, having been bottled up inside a prison and two psychiatric wards for almost a year. But now, being free to roam at will, and aided by a double dose of pills to stiffen his stuttering prick, Tony's sexual desires ran rampant as he trawled the back streets of Camden looking for ladies. Easily blowing his disability allowance in brothels. For cheap thrills, he snapped covert photos of sexy ladies walking alone, and he was spotted licking the sofa in a local bar and cooing, I like this lever. At home, luring back sex workers with the promise of money and drugs, his perverted sexual needs got even rougher, harder, and riskier. As on his telly, he played sickening porn of simulated and real rapes. In mid-December, he travelled to the Midlands to see a masseuse called Sarah. He raped her. She later said, He was crushing me stopping me from breathing. His chest was pushing down on me. He was getting off on the fact that he was trying to kill me. And at the point of ejaculation, his eyes were like something I cannot describe. I knew that if I didn't move that second, I would be dead. And as if to relive this sick moment every time that he bathed or showered, above his bathroom sink, in a childishly bright, and cheerily orange daubing with blood-red writing, he had immortalized her name, Sarah. And once again, he had returned to his original plan from one year ago. As with his bed in the living room of this small sparse flat, he advertised in a local newsagent, Spare room for rent. Female lodger only. On Thursday the 19th of December 2002, 11 months to the day after he had led Sally Rose White from King's Cross Station back to his flat at Hardland, Tony would meet another sex worker, and her name was Liz. Elizabeth Selina Vallad, known as Liz, was born on the 28th of May 1973 to Hassan, an Iranian professor living in America, and her English-born mother, Jackie. Sadly, their marriage was not to be, and after only two years, Jackie and Liz returned home to the market town of Arnold in Nottinghamshire. With a working parent, a nice little home, and her mum seeing a new partner called Peter, Liz had a good start in life. But she was as beautiful and talented as she was fiery and volatile. Whereas once she was a little girl who dreamed of living the high life in London's glittering West End, marrying a rich man, staying in a penthouse, 
and attend in posh parties dressed in silks, gems and furs. As a teenager, her rebellious streak had led her to hang out with a bad crowd, all of which ended in truancy, trouble and theft. Age 16 and unqualified, Liz left school and headed to London, telling her mother she was working as a secretary. In truth, she was a hostess in a massage parlour selling sex for £30 a go. Two years later, Liz met her meal ticket, a multi-millionaire sugar daddy in his 70s who plucked her out of this seedy hellhole and set her up in an exclusive Chelsea flat with a Mercedes, a clothing allowance, dinner at the Ritz and even a boob job. Learning the truth and fearing the worst, Jackie pleaded with her daughter to come home. But Liz was living the life she wanted to live and across the 1990s, she believed that she would always be happy. What happened to her sugar daddy is unknown. But by the end of 2001, with no skills, no home, no job and no savings, as her glamorous life turned from disaster to disaster, by the bitter winter of 2002, 29-year-old Elizabeth Selina Vallad was addicted to crack and feeding her addiction with sex work. On the night of Thursday the 19th of December 2002, beside King's Cross Station, feeling thirsty, Liz told her boyfriend Neville that she was popping to the newsagents to buy herself a drink. She never got to the shop. She never bought a drink. She never returned to Neville. And she was never seen alive again. At an unspecified hour, just as Sally had, like a sinister rerun to mark this macabre little anniversary, Liz entered the flat of her own accord at Four Heartland. And as with both girls, neither were seen or heard. Coming in from the bitterly cold drizzle and biting cold wind, the warmth of the radiators must have felt soothing. And although his flat must have seemed a little odd, both girls had probably been to worse places. Besides, decorated with childlike art, a Wombles poster and his Christmas tree up, as this funny man with a bushy beard, a loud gaudy shirt and a set of amusing socks exuded a fatherly air. There was no reason for fear as he offered Liz a drink, a smoke, some dope and some quick cash for a good fuck. Tony and Liz were just two addicts fueling their needs. So for both, it was a win-win situation. Only, unlike one year earlier, with Sally being a simple girl who was naive and easily led, whereas she had willingly followed Tony into the spare room for consensual sex, Liz did not. Maybe the money wasn't enough. Maybe bondage wasn't her thing. Maybe the rape porn made her nervous. Or maybe, having knocked Sally unconscious during rough sex, rendering her perfectly submissive to his whims. This time, Tony didn't plan to make the same mistakes 
with such a fierce and fiery woman as Liz. Owing to the blood spatter, it was clear that Tony had smashed Liz hard across the head with a heavy blunt object. Slumping onto the sofa, he gripped her thin throat with his bare hands and strangled her until almost every ounce of life was lost. Dragging her limp but still living body into the spare room, on the same double bed where Sally had died, Liz was his to do with as he pleased. Binding her wrists and ankles tight, he climbed on top of this small slim lady as this 19-stone hulk crushed her under his bulk, trapping her blood and slowing her heart as he brutally raped her again and again. At some point during the assault, she died. But Tony didn't care, as to him, she meant nothing. Eleven months earlier, owing to his own impulsive fury over his neighbour's leaky tap, Unwittingly, the police had disturbed his sick and twisted sexual act with Sally's still warm corpse. But having allegedly blacked out, he claimed he couldn't recall. Only now, thanks to a bit of luck, a bungling pathologist and the manipulation of those there to protect him, Tony was free to finish what he had begun. Popping his black shin on Still's camera on a sturdy tripod, Tony manoeuvred the lifeless limbs of Liz's naked body in a series of lewd and disturbing poses. With her legs splayed wide and topped off with a set of Mr. Men's socks on her feet, ironically, the beaming yellow grin of Mr. Happy. Inside her gaping vagina, a six-inch rampant rabbit vibrator had been thrust. Angling her neck with a pillow, as her head was cocked coyly towards the snapping camera, as if, from the grave, she was lovingly enticing her lover to bed. Although she was a beautiful woman, he covered her face with his black NY baseball cap and in some photos, a devil's mask. To Tony, Liz was a nobody. It didn't matter who she was, as with her identity disguised, when he masturbated to the photos, this wantonly submissive woman who fulfilled his every fantasy, could literally be anyone. Maybe even you. Instead of being in prison, every day that Tony was free to roam, he passed the Mornington unit, the police station, and the coroner's court where so many mistakes had been made. And yet, with only one body in his flat, unlike his infamously sadistic hero, this rapist and murderer wasn't a real serial killer yet. But within days, Anthony John Hardy would earn his nickname as the Camden Ripper. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Part 3 of this four-part series into the Camden Ripper continues next week. But to know more information about this case, stay tuned till after the break, which last week featured an advert for Vaginal Lube. Lovely. So stay tuned for some extra details, as well as a little quiz 
a big biscuit, no cake, but a nice cuppa. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Farida Hartman and Andy Browning. I thank you both very much. I hope you are all enjoying the extra crime scene photos and videos which go with the series on Patreon, as well as lots of secret goodies from more than 100 previous episodes. Plus a thank you to Mike Hughes for your very kind donation via supporter. Cakes have been purchased and scoffed. As well as a well done to the winners of the very exclusive Keeving competition via Patreon. Those winners were Gemma Archer, Selena Dean and Fiona McCulloch. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Selling a little, or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. That was a that was a killer. Literally, literally a killer. Literally was a killer. Oh dear lord, that was a hard one. There's I I entirely forgotten how many extra voices were in there. Even though they're hidden underneath my stuff, I have to keep going through and thinking, oh, what voice am I doing with this one? And then oh, complicated. Anyway, welcome to Extra Mile. We're back. We're here. We're back. That was part two. Hope you enjoyed that quite enjoying writing this series because it's a bit different from the others uh very different from the regular murder miles and you know it gives us an interesting insight to who he was as a man so hopefully last week he was kind of you saw him as kind of a, quite a vulnerable person and uh you know the alcoholic the homeless man and hopefully there was a little bit of sympathy there for him but in this episode this is about re going back through everything and going hang on actually he's quite a manipulator isn't it and even though, yes, you know, he is homeless, and yes, you know, potentially is an, well, he is an alcoholic, but when you start looking at his life and things like that, different pieces, you start realising mm, he knows how to play the game, doesn't he? He knows how to manipulate people to get exactly what he wants. And, do you know, there is a sympathetic side to him, but there's also an evil side, There's which is why the series is called The Four Faces of the Camden Ripper. So we've still got two more to go. 
We've got the uh, what's next week's one? The sadist, the sadist, and then the maniac, and then uh, and then we, we go through a lot of different pieces as we go through the series, and then you start re-realizing all that. Like even in episode one, um, like I mentioned that he was evicted from hostels quite a lot, but I don't mention why. So when you're listening to that, you're thinking, oh, he's been kicked out of hostels. Oh, it must be a horrible life. But actually now you're thinking, hang on, he's actually being, you know, he's quite abusive, he's aggressive, he's threatening. And there's pieces that I haven't even told you that there's loads of pieces that I'm deliberately not telling you, which I'll save probably till parts three and four. Anyway, I'm going to make me a tea. Oh, dear Lord. Whoa, right. Tea on. Tea on. Water in mug, there we go. Oh, lordy. Pop that in there. That on. Tea on. Oops, yeah. Thought my gas wasn't going on. Uh, sugar in. One and a half. There we go. Oh, I mistakenly bought the wrong sugar. The other sugar I bought before was a half spoon, which is slightly sweeter, so you don't need to use as much. But I bought the one that isn't as sweet, and now I'm like, everything tastes horrible because I'm used to super sweet now. <sighs> no cake today. I was so busy trying to get this episode written last night. I was working through all the days, and then I was like, oh, either I power through the night and get it finished, or... I wait another day and I find that I, I kind of record better in the mornings, I think. I could be wrong. Anyway, so yeah, it was a bit of a rush. It wasn't a rush, but I just wanted to get it right. And then even recording this, I was like rewriting it as I was recording it. Especially at the end, I was like, oh, it doesn't work. I need to redo that. <sighs> so so I didn't have a chance to go to shops to get some bickies or cakes. Well, I got I got some bickies. I got some, uh, some little version of chocolate hobnobs. They're not too bad, actually. They're slightly thinner. The the OT biscuit is slightly thinner, but the chocolate is a little bit thicker. So when you bite into it, there's a little bit more of a given a bite, but they're not. But I'd say the OT isn't as nice as proper hobnobs. So we've got those. Oh, but they're, they're, they're chocolate digestives, the dark ones by Towergate are very good. I like those. They're very good. Okay. There we go. Also this week, I treated myself. I was in Lidl, and they, they were doing... Um, uh chocolate hazelnut so the kind of nutella style chocolate hazelnut donuts which are really nice it's kind of you know a, a nice chocolate donut with chocolate uh swirls on top through the center is like a thick uh nutella style chocolate but that on the bottom is a thick chocolate base where it's been rested so it's got a bit of a bite as well oh that's really nice i'm hoping to pick up some of those later on Little do some really nice cakey, cakey bits. They've also do some Christmas ones that are very nice. Uh, so what's that? What else is going on at the moment? Not much. It was pissing down yesterday, so I didn't. I, I, I just stayed in and powered through the script, trying to get as much done as possible. And the uh, problem is when it's pissing down, Wi-Fi is not very good. So I, in, my, in the evenings when I go for a walk, I walk along with my iPad next to me and then my my internet dongle, and I try and find all the places where you can get a good signal, because I'm on three, and three is dog shit. I'm sorry, three. Uh, I may be going to O2, because I'm having to use O2 a lot, uh, which is my phone provider, to use my Wi-Fi. Three, the signal is just shit everywhere. And I've been with them for years, and I'm just, oh, it's getting frustrating now. It's like you switch on the little device, and it goes green, and when it goes green, that means good signal. 
But when you open up any device, it goes, can't connect to the internet. And you go, but the little dongle here says green. It's not saying yellow. It's not saying red. It's saying green. That means good signal. And you look inside the, the little bit of software and it says five bars, which is top. And you go, well, I've got a full signal here. So why can't you give me? And every time you call up three, they go, oh, it's your device. And I go, no, I use five different devices. And all of them are saying there's no freaking internet. And they're like, oh, uh, you need to update the software. It's oh, that same old shitty excuse. Getting a bit fed up with three now. So, uh, yeah, I might, I may O2, uh, you've been very good with, for me with my phone. So you may, you may be getting my internet uh, business as well. Not business, you know, account. It makes it sound grander than it is. It's not. Right, what else is going on? Three weeks until Christmas. Yay. Very exciting. Uh, so I've got three days of editing this and then I'm trying to get myself ahead of the game I'm trying to get ahead because I want to be finished by the 21st of December or at least if I can not rush but keep powering through and doing like like it's it's 15 16 hour days to get this done at the moment Um, but I want to get it done so I can be finished by hopefully the 19th and give myself a good couple of days off before January comes because I've got things I want to do. I, as you know, uh, no murder mile January and February. So because uh, I hope if the National Archives are open, I hope to be researching again. That'd be nice. I've got some files still ready to go, but there's some new stuff that I want to check out. Oh, tea time. So tea o'clock. There we go. Pop that in there. Lovely jubbly. I'm going to leave that there and then I'm going to collect it in. I'm going to do the questions and then we'll come back to that. So that's all good. Uh, what else is going on? Oh, I had a good recce this week. I went to visit all the locations for the Camden Ripper, uh, which was interesting. I kind of knew where they were anyway and I'd drawn up a list. I, I thought, I said to myself, I'd. I'd already checked them out online so I could see what they're physically like. But then uh, I wanted to do a proper recce and just just spend like half a day just going around all the locations and seeing where everything is. And, you know, it's nice to get a physical feel of how close things are. And it's really weird. All like all the locations I've been past many times before, I never realised there were Anthony Hardy's locations. And so many of them are so close together. So I don't want to spoil things, but where his flat is and where other locations i've got being careful about this other locations are so close like like uh, the the mornington unit i had no idea exactly uh, how close they were to each other that you could literally see his flat from his bed where he was in hospital and of course the uh the coroner's court is at the back of st pancras hospital which is right there uh then i i had to look at uh, uh king's terrace which was the uh the 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 supported living accommodation he was in that is uh, literally two streets away from away from where his flat was anyway and it's you know everything's really close and you know um obviously he's right at the back of king's cross station as well so it's he seems like quite a lazy man he doesn't seem to ever want to go too far really everything is really local it's it's quite weird anyway let's do questions uh some i will, obviously I will, I will balls up but i'll try not to uh right so question number one let's start simple what was liz's middle name question two difficult one what part of the mental health act was tony sectioned under that would be after his arrest. 
So what part of the Mental Health Act was Tony sectioned under? Question three. Uh, what was written on the glass jar that Tony painted? Question four. What was the name of the two units at St Pancras and St Luke's hospitals uh, where Tony was sectioned? I think I might have just ballsed up one of those before the questions. Question five. What two things did Tony cover Liz's face with? That's obviously after she was dead or during her death. Question six. What was Liz about to buy before she disappeared? Question seven. What was the name of Liz's boyfriend? Question eight. What happened to the report stating Tony shouldn't be discharged from hospital? Question nine. What brand of camera did Tony own? And question ten. What did Tony allegedly say after he licked a pub sofa? Weird man. Weird man. This is why I've enjoyed writing this episode because, as I said, the last episode was quite, quite, kind of a, a little bit of a, uh, a subjective, uh, slightly sensitive portrayal of Tony. Um, oops. Oh. Dropping things on the floor. Um, and that's the thing, really. You can kind of, you can kind of turn anyone into a sympathetic character. You've just got to look at it from their perspective. Uh, but Tony's an interesting one. I think that's... He is quite... He, his personality and character is really... It's all over the shop and it's it's very odd. Uh, I'm looking forward to writing episode th four. is going to be... You'll see him... The real brutal side of who he is. But three will be interesting as well. Because that's his sadistic side and there's there's a lot going on there i think we'll we'll dive into a lot of the the, the more intricate details in there on that one so uh, let's go through some extra details <gasps> why am i out of breath this is weird i was i found realized this when i do all this recording because it takes a couple of hours to record all the audio for the start of this because you have to go through it multiple times and then i do this bit the second i go okay lots of love bye and i press off there's a weird feeling in the boat because all of a sudden it's like I've been talking for hours non-stop and then all of a sudden it's just like it's complete silence and I realise oh I'm by myself again oh it's very weird anyway let's do all these details so I could try not to give away too much uh right so uh as mentioned he was transferred to St Pancras Hospital uh on the 8th of April 2002 and he was there until the 29th um he was on a section but i won't say which section he was in a ward but i won't say which ward see i'm being good now uh and when he was assessed as mentioned he arrived there and he said i'm feeling fine i'm i'm, I'm doing okay he was assessed that day and even the doctor himself said that tony was feeling fine and had no th thoughts of self-harm or suicide or harm to others uh, he was also assessed the next day as well because he was put on he was put on a 15 minute suicide watch. And the consultant psychiatrist there said he, he found no symptoms of mental illness. This is something that's going to crop up quite a lot. If you if you if you're listening to these episodes and you're thinking, oh god, why is everything's all scattergun? Because people are saying he's depressed, he's got manic depression, he's got bipolar disorder. Do you know, there's a lot of similarity there, but there's a lot of things that it's hard to pin down exactly what he has do you know people say he is an alcoholic people say he uses alcohol as a crutch do you know it's a hard thing to pin down 
I remember this from experience with mum. They never no. I sat in rooms with all these experts who sat there, like professor this and doctor that, and blah blah blah, and all different places, and they all had different diagnoses. Even I remember sitting in one room, and the, the, the it was a bit arrogant in there. There, there was a, quite a few people in there, a bit up their own ass with their own all of their all of their you know qualifications that they got. I'm I'm professor, duh, 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 duh. and it's weird. They all sat in a room and they all said, "We've seen this and we've seen that," and then. One of them said, hang on, how can we all see different things? And they realised they'd all got different, they'd all assessed mum in a different way and they'd all assessed mum thinking that and then the others had thought that. And it was like, how can you get the same information from one woman? I was like, welcome to my world. It's like, you can't treat people as a book. You've got, I, I was quite... I was slightly annoyed with them. I said, uh, they were like, oh, well, I've been a professor here for da, 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 all these details. And I said, uh, I have 44 years experience of my mum. And it's the guy, the guy, the good doctor who was next to me, who, who we really trusted. He was nodding away. It was like, it was like, zing. I'm the only person who understands her fully. She's not something to be written on a piece of paper. She's a proper person. So... So it's interesting. So same with Anthony Hardy as well. Do you know, he's uh, he's hard to pin down. And this, this is the thing, I hate to go back to mum as well, but we found this with a lot of healthcare professionals. Very good, but when they don't know something, they go back to default, which is that they say, it's this. And it's like the good doctor we had, he was brilliant. He was like, I don't think it's what people are saying. I think it's a bit of this and a bit of that. I think, I think ev- he was good. He was like, everyone's different. So it's... And people can have multiple personality disorders or multiple mental health issues at the same time. So you can't really pin them down to one specific thing. But it's easier for a chart if you can go, it's it's manic depression. But, you know, in Anthony Hardy's case, it wasn't just depression. It was as seen at the end as well. They said they said, we don't think he has bipolar. We think it's an acute personality disorder. So. Uh, this makes it very difficult. Uh, as mentioned in here, I, I got a big section on this, but I didn't go into it too much. All of his alcoholic relapses when he was there. Um, and as he said, you know, he uses alcohol as a crutch where he's up and down. Uh, and he would, he'd be in the ward and then he'd be out on his day release. And, you know, he'd, sometimes he'd be out for an hour or three hours or sometimes he'd be allowed a whole day. And he'd have to fill out a chart saying, I'm heading out for a day and this is what I'm going to be doing. Obviously, it's based on trust. Um uh, quite often it would be to go to his alcohol awareness meetings but you know if they didn't trust him when he came back if he smelt a drink they would breathalyze him and check him and they'd search his room and things like that um, uh, so 8th of May uh, after about a month there he returned from leave this was like just a couple of hours he was unsteady on his feet he was examined by a doctor and he admitted that he drunk six pints of strong lager whilst on leave and instead of going to his appointment with alcohol advisory service he went to the pub instead 28th of may he returned to the ward and his breath smelt of alcohol he said he'd drunk one pint of beer um no action was taken obviously he wasn't he's not meant to be drinking but um he wasn't on he'd already said that he wasn't going for full abstinence what he wanted to do was to control his alcohol so there would be some alcoholic intake uh, but the whole point was he's not really meant to drink. Uh, 30th of May, uh, a nurse said that he appeared to be drinking, but this was not confirmed. 
Uh, again, 22nd of June, he returned from leave. That's like day release, not full leave, not like big holiday. Uh, and he again, so he has said that he had drunk six litres of strong cider. Uh, after that moment, his leave was stopped. But it's it's on off. It's kind of, it, they stop it for a couple of days and then they, they bring it back on. Because obviously he goes out to his uh, his meetings, uh, you know, the... Um, his mental health meetings, but also his alcohol meetings. What they're trying, even though he's sectioned and he's inside the ward, what they're doing is keeping it open to try and help him reintegrate back into society. Because if he spends all of his time in the ward, you know, he's he's just going to become uh, institutionalised. Third uh, of July as well, smelt uh, unsteady on his feet, and he denied that he'd been drinking. But they found a bottle of uh, empty bottle of strong cider in his bedroom. Uh, what else was there? Just loads. It just kept going and going and going. Um, he'd come back he'd be disorientated the nurses would say you know he smelt of alcohol sometimes he'd turn up and he'd be absolutely paralytic but um, uh, he said he was unwilling to commit to sobriety Um, they had considered prescribing him antabuse uh, which is a drug which works by blocking the oxidization of the alcohol um tony said that he was willing to take it but this wasn't done uh the doctors felt this was correct because um he said that he wasn't aiming for complete abstinence of alcohol he was just trying to control his alcohol intake so they felt that would be the wrong thing to give him um he was on a cocktail of drugs while he was there he was obviously on lithium there's another drug he was on as well uh but that was the kind of the doctor's plan because they were focused on the fact that his he had uh, a depression exacerbated by alcohol that's what they were focused on not on his <laughs> his sex addictions and things like that which they really didn't know that much about that was it was as as you see with all, all of the spates of him uh uh, in alcoholic relapses, that's what they were focused on: his mood and aggression, and his alcohol. But actually, the the sexual nature of uh, those addictions, they they just weren't focused on. It was it wasn't where they were looking at. Uh, didn't mention this in the episode. Um, there are some things that just, as I mentioned before, it just slows down the pro- the uh, the show. But he had a uh, sexual relationship with a lady on the ward. She's only known as Miss Q. Um, in the uh a lot of this information comes from a a, a, there was a big assessment done afterwards after his trial to say what went wrong he went through the healthcare system what went wrong so they analyzed everything it was very good but to protect people obviously everyone's in there as dr d or miss p or you know and this is a lady they're just calling miss q uh she was an inpatient in the ward her husband was in prison at the time and she had two kids uh her and anthony hardy started a relationship in the ward uh it was uh sexual uh, they were found in bed together and uh, even up until the point of the murder of uh, uh, Elizabeth Vallad, um, they were still had a relationship going on, even though I believe that she was still inside the ward at that time. Um, he was actually trying to speak to social services at the time to try and get a flat for her and him together. Uh, but it was kind of problematic because she had kids uh, owing to his back history. Uh, we'll go into a lot of his back history in episode four. That's what we're we're leaving that for. Um, the uh, report that arrived a little bit late, that was from the manager's hearing uh, to discuss his discharge from hospital. We'll dive into some extra bits here. Uh, some of the key findings were that 
uh, he continued to pose a risk of violent behaviour even when his mental illness is well controlled and he is not intoxicated with alcohol. His mood disorder needed to be adequately controlled with mood stabilising medication. His alcohol use needed to be addressed. He would benefit from a psychological assessment of his personality. That is key. That seems to be one of the things that a lot of people are saying this needs to be focused on, but it really wasn't focused on, uh, particularly in a, an assessment of the degree of dissocial personality traits. He should not return to his previous accommodation because of the risk of further harassing his neighbour, even though he said he had no animosity to her. Do you know, there was st- this was one of the concerns about whether he should be released is the fact that she was still living above him. Uh, and alcohol misuse could take place on a regular basis, which it did. Uh, owing to the extremely suspicious circumstances surrounding his arrest and his violent uh, offending. It would be wise for a consultant to make a limited disclosure to the Camden Multi-Agency Public Protection Panel, informing them of his final placement. Uh, as there is strong ev- evidence to believe that he is at risk of reoffending and is likely to cause serious physical and psychological harm to others. Um... As mentioned, there are a lot of doctors there, doctors and staff, all kind of saying that, you know, always got a feeling that he was never telling the truth, that he was kind of manipulating them, that, you know, he would tell them what he thought they wanted to hear. Um, as with the, 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 the team who got them that he's the place at uh, King's Terrace, the uh, supported living space, even they were saying, do you know, he, he does well, but it's kind of you feel like he's kind of leading you uh, to in into a direction of what where he wants to go. It's kind of not entirely the truth. Um, uh, people on the original on the on the second ward at St Luke's, uh, they said he was always considered to be a very a very serious risk history, and we had to work uh, to some extent with the courts and co- what, what, with what the courts and coroners had found. Uh, some of the nurses spoke of anxiety uh, amongst the nursing staff. Uh, there was always that anxiety for me and other colleagues. Whether it was things he was not telling us, I don't know. I think the anxiety was around his persona, his history. That that was the, the main anxiety. Uh, there was a consensus that this man posed a threat. There were a lot of fears surrounding his placement on the ward. Uh, very few people actually had their names on this but uh, a doctor that was there said his behaviour is characterised by the impulses, lack of forethought about the consequences of his actions and seriously irresponsible behaviour oh hang on Uh, I'm going to mark that, there we go Uh, no I'm going to save that for next week I'm going to use that in next week's episode, that'll do uh it's nice rereading these because there's some things that I didn't use in this episode, which is why I'm going through them now. Uh, yeah. what, what was I going to do? Uh, it was mentioned in there. I didn't mention this in there as well, but um, maybe that'll come in next week. But he was slightly bragging to his, his pal Maureen um, about the fact that about how intelligent he was, about how he felt he was one up on the, all the psychiatrists and the doctors and the police who were above him. That's going to pop up again in uh next week's show so let's i'm not gonna do any more because there's some bits in there that i'm gonna i'm gonna add in to next week's because next week's is going to be an another interesting episode hopefully uh so let's do those questions if i can get my screen to roll up come on screen there we got hiccups and burpees i made my screen too small now i can't read it i'll make it really big for when i'm reading 
uh, so I can see it properly. There we go. Right, okay, question number one. Here we go. What was Liz's middle name? Her middle name was Selena. Question number two. What part of the Mental Health Act was Tony sectioned under? This is at the time of his arrest. It was section 37. Oh. Question number three. What was written on the glass... What was written on the glass jar that Tony painted? It was Sally Rose White, R.I.P. Question four. What was the name of the two units at St Pancras and St Luke's Hospital where Tony was sectioned? They were the Cardigan Ward and the Mornington Unit. Question five. What two things did Tony cover Liz's face with after slash during her death it was his black ny baseball cap and the and a devil's mask <coughs> i'll post some, some of those pictures of the devil's mask online it's a creepy one it's not a cartoony one it's kind of a rubbery one um if you uh if you've got the access to the patreon account if you look on there you look at uh, one of the photos i don't know whether i posted it in uh, this one or the previous one but it's when they went round to his flat when after he'd murdered Sally and they took a picture of his bed and his bed's all neat and it's got the kind of blue and grey sheets and it's all neat and his his uh his t shirts on the radiator and things like that and his medications there. But on the pillow you can see the devil's mask is there and it's a big thick rubber one with kind of uh red face, yellow horns, and it's got a really menacing grin grin. It's quite ooh, it's quite horrible. Uh question six what was Liz about to buy before she disappeared? It was a drink. We don't quite know where she disappeared. Her her boyfriend at the time did say, uh, well, he, he, he kind of uh, referenced it, but he, he said, oh, she was going down to near the crossroads, but she, he never really said where the crossroads. Uh, ironically, question number seven. What was the name of her boyfriend? It was Neville. Full name, Neville Foster. Question eight. What happened to the report stating Tony shouldn't be discharged from hospital? It was stuck in the mail room for a day or two, i.e. delayed. Question number nine. What brand of camera did Tony own? It was a chin-on. And question ten. What did Tony allegedly say after he licked a pub sofa? He said, I like the leather weirdo anyway that's that done hope you enjoyed that i'm gonna have a tea i'm gonna have some biscuits i might go to costa in a bit grab myself a coffee maybe have some of those mm, those chocolate hazelnut donuts from Lidl. lovely 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 anyway that's me done uh see you next week for part three of the four faces of the camden ripper stay well be good stay safe lots of love bye bye Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit Juvederm.com.